You're listening to The Game Changers with Jason Jennings. Leadership lessons in speed, productivity, growth, innovation, and reinvention. Now, here's worldwide best-selling author and speaker, Jason Jennings, and your host, Dale Dixon. Making the right decision. Hi, Dale Dixon here. Welcome to The Game Changers. Jason Jennings, so good to hear your voice today. Uh, great being with you, Dale. So today, we're, we're really taking off from an earlier podcast. We Back in episode 13, we talked about every employee being the owner, and you you went through the process of talking about the importance of the owner, not an owner, and you briefly shared the story of Billion Dollar Brad. So let's pick up. Give us a brief recap of that as we encourage our listeners to go back and listen to that in full, but give us the brief recap on why it's so important for every employee to be the owner. Uh, well, let's begin and uh, point out again that there is a, a distinction, a, a big distinction, and it's not a fine line between thinking and acting like an owner and thinking and acting like the owner. Uh, when somebody thinks and acts like an owner, well, they've got some skin in the game, they've got some energy in the game, they are somewhat committed because they are one of many owners. But when somebody thinks and acts like the owner, that means they've got all the skin in the game. Uh, that means that they've got their, their entire future uh, riding on, uh, on, on the horse they're on. So there's a big difference between uh, thinking and acting like an owner and thinking and acting like the owner. Now, one of the things we found uh, from our research and screening of these 220,000 companies is that in truly great organizations whose, whose, whose success uh, withstands the rigors of time, uh, people think and act like the owner in the organization. And the story we were telling uh, was a story of a, of, of a young man in his 20s named Billion Dollar Brad at, at Coke Industries. Uh, Coke Industries, for the uninitiated, uh, is either the largest publicly traded or pri- privately held company in the world or number two, uh, depending on the year. They and Cargill kind of go back and forth, but they'll do about $120 billion this year. They're involved in hundreds of different businesses. And as I pointed out during the podcast where we discussed it earlier, my politics might be very different than those of Charles Koch, uh, the man who has created the world's biggest or second biggest privately held company, uh, but there's always something to learn. And one of the things I learned there was that everybody in his organization thinks and acts like uh, the owner. And he introduced me to Billion Dollar Brad, this young guy in his 20s who had made a a multi-billion dollar decision. And I I was shocked uh, when he introduced me to Brad, that in any organization, anybody who was, I think Brad was 26 or 27, uh, would be empowered to make a, a several billion dollar decision. And uh, as we were walking back to the elevators, uh, I said, why would you let a, a young guy in his 20s make a, a multi-billion dollar decision? And he said, well, uh, he said he had more knowledge than anybody in the organization to make that decision. He said, I probably or might have made the wrong call or somebody in the C-suite might have made the wrong call because we did not have the knowledge. He had the knowledge. And then I remember looking at Charles and saying, what if he had made the wrong decision? And Charles just looked at me and he said, well, we would have had a pretty poopy year then, wouldn't we? Uh, I mean, the company wouldn't have gone out of business, but we would have had a pretty poopy year. But we would have learned something from the bad decision. So that's the story of Billion Dollar Brad. Which leads us into the topic for this podcast, because once a business owner or a manager embraces this idea that they are going to make every employee the owner, 
you've got to create some uh, wiggle room for those employees to make some bad decisions. I can't imagine billion-dollar Brad bats a 1,000. So let's talk about what happens when an employee makes the wrong decision. What, what, what needs to go into that process of working through that and the poopy year? Um, well, I, I, I think back to Charles Schwab and, and, and the Schwab organization, who I studied and uh, spent a lot of time with and writing about in my book, uh, uh, It's Not the Big That Eat the Small, It's the Fast That Eat the Slow. Uh, and, and, and Schwab does something very interesting, which is the answer to your question. Uh, at Schwab headquarters in San Francisco, they actually have a museum of failed innovations. And, uh, and as you walk into the company, uh, you will actually go through the museum of failed innovations. Additionally, uh, the company has a couple of hour video that is must viewing. It's an integral part of the orientation of every new person coming into the organization, which is about Schwab's failures. Now, in more, most organizations, they don't, they don't ever talk about the failures. In fact, in most organizations, you know, they'll, uh, they'll push the uh, failures underneath the bed like a bunch of dust bunnies, I mean, never to be revisited again. Uh, most CEOs standing up and talking about the failures of the organization would pee themselves in their dark blue suit. And, and, I, and I looked at Schwab and I said, does this mean that you celebrate failure? At Schwab, and he said, "No, that's stupid. I mean, we we would never celebrate uh, failure as an organization." Uh, he said, first of all, for everything that we do, uh, we have a plan. We 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 make a plan for everything we're going to achieve. Uh, the second thing that we have is we have a backup plan. Uh, I mean, if the first plan doesn't work, and he said, and then if the first plan doesn't work. And we have to fall back and implement the second plan. And if it doesn't work, I mean, then then we, we have to say, what have we learned from this? And he said, so it's not a, as much about celebrating failures as it is out in the open. What have we learned from our failures that allow us to become a better organization? And, and I, I also hearken back. Uh, to what Charles Koch told me. Uh, and I, I know it's funny when he said, well, if Brad's decision had been a bad decision, we would have had a pretty poopy year. Uh, he said we wouldn't have gone out of business, but it would have been a, a pretty poopy year and we wouldn't have had great results. And I think there's the magic. I mean, uh, nobody in an organization is empowered to make a decision that would derail the organization. And this goes back to another podcast in which we discussed you have to look at everything an organization does as making small bets making lots of small bets. So we're not saying that anybody in an organization is empowered to lead the company, the entire organization, to the edge of a cliff and say, okay, we're going to all jump now or, or we're going to do this now. I mean, you always have to be constantly worried as a good steward uh, about the strength and the uh, ongoing ability of the organization to exist. And, that, and that's why you don't bet the ranch. So a billion-dollar decision in the case of Charles Koch, uh, where they're doing $120 billion a year, was actually a pretty small decision. And what I heard you say uh, going back to Schwab was there are multiple plans in place. And so these the decisions are well thought and you've really equipped people to to capitalize on the knowledge because a piece of what we talked about during episode 13 was that you institutionalize a desire to learn a constant learning process. And so that empowers people then to have to to have plan A, B, C and D in place. 
Well, yeah, but, but, but even more importantly than that, Dale, I mean, there have to be some rules for making the right decisions. Uh, rule number one is this. Uh, the organization, because ha- yeah, you don't want to have stupid people or dumb people making decisions in an organization. So, number one, an organization has to develop an institutionalized appetite for knowledge. Uh, now, in the case of Charles Koch, early in his career, he set out to learn the secrets of peace, prosperity, and progress. And, uh, I mean, and he is a student. When you walk into his office, it looks more like a library than anything else. So it begins the top of the organization. Uh, everybody in the organization has to have an appetite for knowledge. When the leader of the organization, I mean, whether it's Charlie at Charlie's Diner or whether it's the CEO of a multinational or it's the uh, tech-savvy head of a startup in Silicon Valley, when they're seen as having a a constant appetite for knowledge, eventually that moves throughout the organization, and people who don't have an appetite for knowledge are moved out of the organization. Number two, there has to be a set of rules, and the big rules is this. It's an inviolate rule. It's a rule that exists for the organization, and that is this. I mean, what do we do that creates value? We exist to create value. Uh, Number three, you've got to build the vision, the purpose of the organization around that value. And you have to constantly look at the marketplace through that lens. And then number four, everybody has to have a roadmap and they have to be measured and be held accountable for their decisions. And then the way you make the right decisions is you create a structure where decisions are made by the right people with the right information at the right time. And they decisions are not made because of tenure. Uh, decisions are not made because of rank in the organization. Team members make decisions and increasingly larger decisions based on their track record of past winning decisions. And then number six, and, and this is the case in all great organizations, uh, you've got to reward people based on the value they create as a result of making the right decisions. And let me just punctuate that one with a story. Uh, After I wrote about the Coke organization in my book, Think Big, Act Small, uh, about a year went by, and and I got a telephone call uh, from somebody in in HR at Coke. And, uh, And they wanted to know how many copies of the book, Think Big, Act Small, had sold. And, you know, I generally, uh, I'm pretty transparent, but I I was curious as to why they wanted that number. And they went on to explain to me, well, you know, the Koch organization had never agreed to be the subject of a book before or had never agreed to be written about before. And it was a woman by the name of Mary Beth Jarvis, who was the head of communications at the time, who convinced Charles Koch and the organization to be a subject for one of my books. And as it turns out, her annual bonus in large measure was going to be determined by how many copies of my book had sold because that in measure would mean how much value had been created for the Coke organization. So at Coke, it's not unusual for a worker with, I don't know, sixty, seventy, eighty thousand $80,000 base salary to earn an additional two, three, four, five hundred thousand dollars $500,000 a year uh, based on making the right decisions. That's that's amazing. So in the book, this 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 topic is coming out of Think Big, Act Small. But uh, as we wrap this up, we've got just a couple minutes left. In the book, you write specifically that employees should know the hold and market values of everything. Uh, dig a little deeper into that and, and tell us why. What, what do you mean by that, and what does it mean overall for the organization? Well, um, great companies make sure that 
all the knowledge is available to all the people in the organization. And uh, I remember Charles Koch telling me that uh, when, when he gave me a copy of their five-year plan and told me to take it home and read it, and I asked him if uh, uh, he wanted me to sign a non-disclosure agreement, and he said, no, take it, copy it, give it to whoever you want. He said, every year uh, we copy it and give it to all of our competitors so they'll know exactly how and when they're going to die. And, and, and while he said that a little bit tongue-in-cheek, he looked at me and he said, uh, you know, knowledge is not power anymore. Execution is power. And the more people who have more knowledge, the more likely you are to have good execution. If you, if you believe in the premise that people like a score, people like to watch a game where there is a numerical outcome, it only makes sense that you say at the beginning of the year, here's the value of this enterprise. Today, we're worth three and a half or four million dollars. And a year from now, we'll measure it and we'll determine how much we're worth. Is, the, is this an enterprise worth holding? Is this an enterprise where we're no longer creating value and we need to leave this? And I truly believe uh, in the human spirit. I, I believe that everybody is trying to create a better tomorrow than today. In fact, I, I know we're almost out of time, but let me give you one more quick example of that. Uh, where we live in the summer at our at our summer place in northern Michigan, one of my pleasures and delights is uh, going out to the various farm stands and buying buying fresh produce. And there's always one. I mean, it's under a multicolor tent. It's a family-owned operation. And I love stopping there. All the kids uh, work, the cashiers, uh, the father who I've gotten to know drives the trucks and is in charge of transport. It's quite an operation. And uh, I'll, I'll never forget the day a couple of years ago uh, I showed up and I had an unusually large order, uh, so probably $100 worth of produce. And as I, as I was being rung up by one of the daughters and, and speaking some German with her because she's a German student in university, after she rang up my order, she said, yay, I won, I'm ahead of everybody else. And I said, well, what's that all about? And she said, oh, the three of us are having, I mean, we're just having a contest to see who can ring up the greatest amount of sales. I mean, you know, the net beneficiary of that I mean, is the owner of the business, their father. But people love to be measured. People like to improve. People like, like to do well. Well, if they don't have the numbers, if there's no way to measure their contribution, uh, at the end of the day, there is no measurement whatsoever. Uh, so I truly believe that people want to improve. They want to be measured. They want to make it a game. It's, it's, it's just human nature uh, to want to be better. It's up to leaders, I mean, to really plug into that. I mean, into that truism. And the big aha moment for me out of this, you know, is three words that you uttered. You've got to knowledge, institutionalize the appetite for knowledge, but execution is power. I mean, think on that, folks, for the next week. Uh, we're out of time, Jason. A couple things, though. Uh, we're really here to help businesses be better, and there's only one way for that to happen, and that's for more and more people to know about what's going on. So we're encouraging folks, if you're listening to this through iTunes, 
uh, if you would write a review, go into iTunes and tell us how this podcast is helping you. That naturally helps this become more visible on iTunes the more people who review it. Share it through email. Uh, send the links to your friends. And then if you've got a question for Jason, uh, we'd, we'd love to hear those questions. Send it to questions at jason-jennings.com. Questions at jason-jennings.com so that we can spread the word. That's all we're trying to do. Dale, we'll see you next week for another cup of coffee. Absolutely. You've been listening to The Game Changers, leadership lessons in speed, productivity, growth, innovation, and reinvention with business thought leader, best-selling author, and keynote speaker, Jason Jennings. Read Jason's most recent New York Times bestseller, The Reinventors, and visit his website at jason-jennings.com.